Yes. An iPad. Friends, let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 18 this morning. We'll be uh, covering quite a large swath of the Word today. So, encourage you to have a Bible open in front of you, whether it's uh, one under the seat in front of you, or one you've brought, or even let you use your phone. One time I would encourage you to use your phone to follow along uh, as we work our way through uh, uh, Revelation chapter 18 this morning. Uh, we are in the sixth time through, not the sixth time through the whole book. But the sixth time through the end times, remember it's not just once John describes it, uh, he goes through it a total of seven times. We've already been through five of these accounts, every one of them a different camera angle on the end times, all of them uh, concluding with the return of the Lord Jesus. And so this is the sixth time through. And yet another perspective on the end times. And this focus particularly on Babylon, uh, the world system around us. Uh, Babylon, the great prostitute. Babylon, the great city. So uh, we want to look at this section. The reason our section is so large is because this is, forms one unit of thought. The whole thing is about the fall of Babylon and makes sense to just try to cover it all together. I think we'll be able to do this without any trouble. You'll be out well before dinner time this evening. That was a joke, so. Let's, uh, I'm not going to read the entire section, uh, but I will read a portion of it just to wet our taste for what's ahead of us this morning. So let's look at uh, the first uh, eight or so verses of uh, Revelation chapter 18 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. Uh, in the cup... Uh, she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plague shall come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Let's Pray for help as we look into this section on Babylon, the great city. Ask for God to quicken us with his spirit and give us minds and hearts to grasp his truth here in his word. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Christ Jesus, for your presence here with us this morning. Thank you that you have promised to be with us. Uh, we're grateful, Heavenly Father, for Jesus, our mediator, that we can come to your throne through Jesus, your Son, Lord, 
I pray that you would open our eyes to what your word says. Help us, quicken us with your spirit of mercy and your spirit of holiness. Fill us afresh with his illuminating ministry. Open our eyes to see and our ears to hear. Quicken me, Jesus, to speak and preach your truth. I uh, entrust myself into your hands. I pray you would strengthen my voice in particular. Help us now, Lord Christ, we ask in your name. Amen. These are ruins of the ancient Roman city of Pompeii. And behind the city in the clouds in the distance, you can see uh, Mount Vesuvius. Pompeii was buried under uh, volcanic ash and pumice, uh, 13 to 20 feet of volcanic ash as Mount Vesuvius erupted in the year 79, completely uh, burying the city. Uh, when archaeologists began to excavate Pompeii, they found several of the residents frozen in time, as it were, as they were covered by the ash of Vesuvius. Uh, one of these victims was a woman. Her feet turned toward the city gate, but her face turned back towards something that lay just beyond her outstretched hands. The prize for which her frozen fingers were reaching was a bag of pearls. Perhaps she had dropped these as she was fleeing the city for her own life. Perhaps she'd found them or they'd been dropped by someone else. In either case, death hard at her heels and life beckoning beyond the city gates, she could not shake off the spell and stopped and turned back for the pearls. And when she did so, she was met with death as her reward. Frozen for all time in a posture and attitude of greed. Something like this happened uh, to Lot's wife, if you can remember back to Genesis. Uh, this takes place in Genesis 19. Lot and his family were told to flee the city of Sodom as God is about to rain his judgment down on that wicked city. Uh, listen to the word describe uh, what takes place. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Uh, scientists have tried to explain that and perhaps something similar to the woman from Pompeii took place uh, to Lot's wife. In either case, she was also frozen in a posture of longing for what the city of Sodom could offer her, she too frozen in that posture of greed. J.C. Ryle described her like this, uh, she died because the world was in her heart and because her heart was in the world. Her world was in her heart and the heart, her heart was in the world. How do we prevent this same attitude from taking place in our own lives? How do we prevent the world from getting into our hearts? How do we resist the lure of the bright lights in the big city? Last Sunday I asked how we could escape the lure of the mystery woman. And in chapter 17, the world system around us was described to us as an alluring and seductive woman, uh, Babylon the great prostitute. But this week in chapter 18, the metaphor changes and uh, the people and nations of the world that are organized and opposed to Christ are described as, as more of an alluring city to us, uh, complete with uh, great wealth and sumptuous luxuries and, and even the bright lights. How do we li uh, resist the allure of Babylon the Great? How do we preserve the world from getting into our hearts and, and 
uh, withstand the draw of this great city as it's known in these verses? What helps us resist and prevent the world from getting into our hearts is by seeing five features of the great city that John describes for us in the verses before us. Five features of Babylon the Great. And the first that we encounter is the fall of Babylon. The first thing we see is a glorious angel descend to the earth and announce that Babylon the Great has fallen. I want to point out four things about Babylon's fall to you uh, this morning. First of all, we see the messenger that announces the fall. Uh, it's, it's a glorious and radiant angel. Look again at verse 1. It says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, John on the earth, obviously, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. Uh, the notable thing to see about this angelic being is the radiance and his brightness, not unlike the angel that delivers the news of Jesus' birth to the shepherds. Think and recall of what Luke says there, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Think, too, of Moses descending from Mount Sinai, having received the law, and how Moses had to cover his face because of the radiance uh, that frightened the Israelites. And so this angel is obviously very near the very presence of God, uh, 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 an angel with high rank. Uh, it says he has great authority here. And so this, this glorious-looking, high-ranking angel obviously must be coming to deliver extremely important news. So we see the messenger delivering this announcement about the fall. The second thing I want you to note is the certainty of the fall of Babylon. Uh, the form of his announcement indicates that, that this is an utter certainty about to happen. Notice verse 2, and he, he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Take note of, of that phrase, fallen, fallen, Babylon has yet to fall. But this angel is using past tense this happens frequently in Scripture. What it means is that what has been decreed to take place, uh, what God has declared before the foundation of the world to happen, it's so certain that the angel is allowed, it, it announces it in the past tense. It's already taken place in the mind of God, in other words. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. It, this is sure to happen. As, as history unfolds, this will surely take place. I want you to see the revelation that comes through the fall of Babylon. And by that I mean Babylon is exposed for what she really is. Uh, the fall strips away her glamorous facade and reveals what's underneath. Verse 2, continuing where we Stop, she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. I want you to notice the word haunt there that John uses several times. Uh, the angel uh, speaks. You know, you and I describe a haunt as someplace where we like to casually hang out. One of my frequent haunts is... Uh, wherever you like to go get your coffee or, or whatever. It's not that way at all. Actually, it would be better to translate this as a place of detention, even a prison, a jail. And so these, these uh, things, are these detestable things, are, are actually uh, a jail, every unclean bird, a cage for every unclean and detestable beast, a prison for every unclean spirit, this is what is at the heart of Babylon. One scholar says it seems that Babylon is an important place on the surface that is inhabited by glorious people, but the fall of Babylon is the removal of the veneer. The demons, unclean spirits, birds, and hated beasts appropriately are dwelling in Babylon uh, 
and Babylon's rejection of God. We see what's revealed at the fall of Babylon. Babylon, heart and soul for what she truly is. And then the fourth thing I want you to see is the reason for Babylon's fall. She has fallen because she leads people away from finding their satisfaction in the one true and living God. Look at verse 3, if you would. For all nations, there's no exclusion here. We're talking about the entire world. Have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. This is not actual immorality, as we noted last week. This is a metaphor used throughout the Old Testament for spiritual unfaithfulness, uh, for people finding satisfaction outside of the good gifts God provides. All nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Instead of turning to Christ and finding their joy and satisfaction in Christ, the nations have been lured by the bright lights and glamour of the big city of Babylon and have sought their joy and satisfaction in what she offers. And the effect of the world's pleasures, the effect of the big city pleasures on the human heart is like wine on the human body, Nations are drunk, stagger with the pleasures of the world. John's practically quoting what we read in our scripture reading just a few minutes ago from Jeremiah 51. Indeed, this whole chapter resonates with the longer chapter, Jeremiah 51, including the call to flee the city. But this verse in particular, John's practically quoting uh, to us. It's Jeremiah 51. Uh, where did it go? No, I don't want that one. Jeremiah 51.7. There we go. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine. Therefore, the nations went mad. Quite a picture of uh, the Jeremiah and John paint. One one uh, man explains it like this, instead of turning to the Lord and finding their satisfaction in the things he freely offers to those that love him, the nations have torn, turned to a spiritual red light district for their safety, security, health, purpose, provision for the future, and self-esteem. This is the reason for Babylon's fall, is her immense seduction of the nations and how she makes the world drunk with her pleasures. So first we see the first feature of the great city is the announcement of the city's fall. Babylon is fallen. John sees a glorious angel, very important uh, authoritative angel, glorious and splendid, descend to the earth and utter this pronouncement that Babylon the Great has fallen. There's a second feature of this city that I want you to see here in chapter 18, and that's the warning about Babylon. The angel, yet another angel, another voice, calls God's people to flee the city and escape her punishment. Let me point out two things about this warning. First and foremost, this warning is for believers. This is a warning for believers. Another voice cries out this warning to those who know the Lord. Look at your text with me and notice verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. Many believe that because my people is used, that this is actually Christ addressing his church. They're not positive because of what is said later on, but it's, it's a significant possibility that this is Jesus speaking here. Come out of her, my people. Lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. And so John is writing uh, the early church, 
And here in 2021, this is addressed to us in the room this morning. That God calls us to come out of the great city. Again, very similar to the words of Jeremiah 51, flee from the midst of Babylon. Uh, that was the actual city Jeremiah was referring to. Of course, we're referring to the world system around us. It's any city and no city. Uh, or it, you could say it's every city. Uh, the world around us. Paul issues a similar uh, call and summons to believers in the, the church at Corinth. Listen to these well-known words. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and teach no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now I was, uh, I have heard people use this verse when I was younger to, to uh, decry going to movie theaters. Uh, come out from their midst and be separate from them. Uh, and other things like men having long hair and girls wearing pants, and perhaps you grew up in an environment where you were taught that that's what this verse teaches. This is not a, a summons for believers to leave the world that we live in. I'm talking about the system. We, we, we live in this system. We, we are part of it. We're called to bring the news of Christ to this world. It's not a summons to enter a monastery, uh, to live in isolation. It's, it's not a summons to head for the hills and, and uh, organize a Christian compound or commune. And this is clear because of what Christ himself says in John chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer. Jesus says, I do not ask you, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. And so by no means this call, come out of her, my people, is a call for us to leave uh, and head for the hills or dress weird. What is it a call for? It's not a call to get out of the world, uh, for us to get out of the world, but it's a call and a summons and a command to get the world out of us. This is not a command for you to leave and depart, but to make the world depart from your heart. It's a summons not to think like the world thinks. That is clear from God's word. You and I are called to have a different frame of mind than the world around us has. And this is clear from this well-known phrase in, in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world. Or another version says, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You are actually summoned to think differently from the world system that surrounds us. It's a summons to think differently, and it is also a summons to act differently. Uh, James makes this crystal clear. Uh, listen to James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. We do make much of that phrase, and rightly so. And we promote ministry to widows, both through Widow's Harvest and, and to our own widows. But we often leave the last phrase dangling. Don't leave the last phrase off. Ministry to widows, vital. But look at how it concludes. 
and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's a really high calling, isn't it? It's like going to eat at Provino's and wearing a white shirt. I don't know about you, but I think um, marinara sauce or meat sauce actually has a mind of its own. and it, it, I have felt it leap off the plate onto my shirt. <laughs> Unstained from the world. This, this call to believers and, and possibly from the very lips of Christ to his church, come out of her. Come out of her is not a command for us to leave the world system. Not a command for us to leave the world, but for us to get the world out of us. To keep the world from taking up residence in our hearts like Lot's wife. And look at why. It says as he goes further, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Share her practices, the voice warns, and you'll share her plagues. Well, I think this deserves a little more thought. How do we know if like Lot's wife, uh, our hearts are in the world and the world is in our hearts. I came across one pastor's uh, suggestion this week and he asked five questions and they kind of act as a, a litmus test to determine whether we're in the world and the world is in us. And so listen to these Five. I don't have them on a slide for you, but just, just as I read them, uh, consider whether this is true of you or not. Number one, do you feel good about yourself because the world respects you? Or do you feel good about yourself because you trust in Jesus and are united to him by faith, and that makes you righteous and right with God? Number two, you feel good about yourself because you think you can make a lot of money and ensure your future? Or do you feel good about yourself because you trust your Heavenly Father to meet all your needs because He is good and you can trust Him? Number three, do you feel good about yourself because you know your agenda, know your goals, and are chasing your dreams? Or do you feel good about yourself because you are seeking your joy and the joy of those you love, and it feels good to make sacrifices for them? Number four. Do you feel good about yourself because you have a sound mind and a strong body and have great health insurance? Or do you feel good about yourself because the purpose of your life is to make much of Jesus and death will be gained to you because you will be in his presence and you are confident that he will raise your body to be like his glorious body on the last day? And five. Do you feel good about yourself because you have a great security system in your home and you pack a weapon that you know how to use? Or do you feel good about yourself because you trust God's providential plan for you and are ready to preach the gospel every chance you get while you live? Whew. Well, I think many of us have probably answered... Uh, Yes. Or at least sometimes we answer yes to those questions. So what should we do if we have mumbled a yes to one or those? I think God gives us clear 
answers of what to do in his word. And, and I think we can find the remedy for this kind of worldliness in James chapter 4. It's, it's about a dozen pages to the left. And I encourage you just to flop over a few pages till you come to James chapter 4 and look at these familiar verses with me. It's right after the book of Hebrews. And, and I don't have to make these clear. James is crystal clear and immensely practical. And it tells us precisely what to do if our hearts are in the world and the world is in our hearts. I'm going to begin reading at verse 4 and read down through, um, I'll, I'll pause at 7 and, and call your attention to those. But beginning at verse 4 of James 4, it says, You adulterous people. Here's the same metaphor from the previous chapter. This is about spiritual adultery. It's seeking your satisfaction in things other than Christ. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? What's enmity? The word could be translated hostility or even hatred. And so hear this again. Do you not know that friendship with the world system around us is hostility with God? Therefore, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? You are betrothed to him, and he is jealous for your hearts. But he gives more grace. Oh, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You're not going to have to screw up your will to do this. He will generously supply grace to follow these suggestions. That's a pathetic way to say it. Follow these commands, suggestions. <laughs> and look how clear they are. Number one, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Place yourself under his word, like the fact that friendship of the world is hostility towards him. Put yourself under that. Number two, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So yes, put yourself under God's command not to be friends with the world, not to let the world into your heart, but to resist the devil by God's grace, and he will flee from you. Three, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. As you come submitted to him and resisting the lure of the devil through Babylon the great, and plead with the Lord, uh, Father, draw my heart toward you. Cleanse my heart from the world. Get the world out of me. Four, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Stop doing World-like things. Simple as that. Five. Oh, this will not go down well. Be wretched and mourn and weep. But your laughter, your... your Easy going. Everything's okay. Hey, this is cool attitude. I'm okay. And God's okay with this. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning. And your joy to gloom. Oh, how I have forsaken Christ as I've allowed the world to get into my heart. Oh, I have turned my back on fellowship with Him. Oh, how I have rejected His wisdom. Oh, I have not let Him be my all in all. Oh, how I have not allowed Him to satisfy my soul. Think of what I have missed. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Sixth, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Instead of proudly participating in worldly uh, activities, sinful activities, instead of proudly adopting worldly thoughts and, and, and being smug about it, Oh, I'm just like everybody else. Fall on your face before the Lord. And including, I was completely wrong. And He will exalt you. When the world is in our hearts, and our hearts are in the world, these six commands from James, are the remedy. Friends, this is the warning for believers. Uh, think of them as Christ's very words to His church, for the bride that He laid down His life for. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. A second thing I want you to see here is that this warning is also about repayment. The Lord will repay Babylon in full. The Lord will uh, dish out onto Babylon the same measure that she has poured out uh, on others. Look at verse 6. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repaid her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. Sounds like uh, he's calling out for Babylon to get double for her sins. It's really could be better give her an exact duplicate of what she's given. Give her the same thing. Verse 7 makes this clear. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. And notice the swift way that she will be repaid. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who's judged her. I want you to see this second feature about Babylon the Great. And that is the warning about Babylon, the great city. Uh, two things we've seen is the warning for believers and the, the call for full repayment. There's a, a third feature that we need to go on and see. And that is the lament over Babylon. We're going to hear the earth, the people of the earth mourn. Uh, for the destruction of the great city as the world system around us crumbles. We will hear people mourn the loss and we'll hear this mourn from three specific groups. First, we hear kings, government leaders, political officials mourn the loss of Babylon. Look in verse 9, and the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas! Or, Woe! Alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Those who... 
those kings, those atheistic and God-hating materialistic kings obsessed with success in their political careers and, and trade and industry, these will weep and mourn as they watch their hopes and political ambitions go up in flames. Kings mourn the destruction of, of the world system around us. There's another group, though, and that's merchants, uh, uh, shopkeepers, store owners, those in retail mourn over the loss of Babylon. Look at verse 11, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. And, and look at the list of extensive imports that he describes in verse 12. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves. That is human souls. All of it. Gone. John would have thought of the Babylon of his day, which was the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was known for their excessive consumption of, of things like these in verse 12, uh, 12 and 13. Our modern civilization, the current form of Babylon, is known for much the same things, all the way down to human slavery. Enjoy these things at the expense of human life. But with the fall of Babylon, when the world crumbles, these luxury items in particular will no longer be available. Look at verse 14. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you and all your delicacies. That's a reference to exotic food. And your splendors, and that's a reference to fine clothing and decorations, are lost to you, never to be found again. These expensive tastes of the rich and famous go unfulfilled. One man says everything they've ever counted dear will go up in smoke. And verse 5 finishes out this account of the merchant's the merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. Merchants wail at the loss of Babylon. There's a third group we see mourn here, and that is those who make their living on the sea. Representatives of the transportation industry, in other words, uh, lament the loss of their income. And their lament begins right in the middle of verse 17. Look at what it says. And all shipmasters and seafaring men Sailors and all those whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads, uh, a sign of mourning. As they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Those in transportation mourn the loss. But not everyone mourns the loss of Babylon. Not everyone is sorry to see her go. Not everyone says, alas, alas. Look at verse 20. Rejoice over her, O oh heaven! And you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Oh, while, while the earth mourns 
the lost. Saints who are with the Lord. And even the Old Testament prophets are summoned to rejoice for finally, finally, God has settled the score with the culture opposed to him. We'll see this more in just a minute. The third feature of Babylon the Great is the lament at her loss. Let's hasten on. I want you to see a fourth feature of Babylon. This perhaps the most dramatic feature of all, and that is the disappearance of Babylon. The world community organized against God, that is to say anti-Christian culture, the great city uh, described throughout Revelation, disappears from view. It vanishes. It is no more. I want to mention three things about the disappearance of Babylon. First of all, I want you to see the symbol of her disappearance. Yet another angel still from heaven shows John a, a powerful symbol of just how Babylon will disappear. Look in verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone. Millstones were used in villages to grind corn and grain for, for, the, uh, for making bread. They would have been grinding all day long. A great millstone refers, of course, to a particularly large one. Uh, but this mighty angel, it says, like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Just as that millstone, you would expect it to, to plunge beneath the water, vanish from sight, so Babylon, the great city, Babylon the great, the great prostitute, however you want to call her, the world around us, she will disappear from view. Look at the last phrase, and will be found no more. This is emphatic. Will be found no more at all. She'll be completely gone. She will vanish from sight. This is the symbol. Just as a millstone is dropped into, into the ocean, never to be seen again, sinking to the bottom, this is how it'll be like with Babylon. She will simply vanish from view. She will be found no more at all. And then I want you to see next the silence that results. And this silence that comes from the disappearance of Babylon, look at it, it's deafening. It is deafening silence. Verse 22 um, yeah, and the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. Again, that phrase, no more at all. Uh, music, which our culture thrives on, uh, will not be heard. It goes on to say, neither will there be construction or building and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. That is to say, no more at all. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more at all. That is the daily activity of grinding mill, of grinding grain and corn for bread. Daily activities as you know them will cease to exist. And look at the other daily events that stop. And the, the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. Again, no more at all. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more at all. You guys squeaked it in. Good job. You, you got it taken care of before those things stop happening. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. So, so again, look at all the things of daily life. Civilization, this is describing civilization as we know it, ceasing to exist. 
No more at all. This is the silence. He gives the source of the disappearance, or rather, why these things happen and disappear. Reasons why this happens. And verse 23 goes on to say, For, there's the word of explanation, your merchants were the great ones of the earth. They were the ones sought out for satisfaction and pleasure. God was forgotten, but those in retail were sought for pleasure. Uh, store owners, shopkeepers, Amazon became the great ones of the earth. Another reason, as 23 continues, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. The word sorcery in particular can refer to potion making or drug use. The nations literally drunk on the wine of our culture. And 24, the last source or reason in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who've been slain on earth. The blood of the martyrs stains the soil of Babylon the Great. The fourth feature of the great city Babylon is her disappearance. And here we see life as we know it, civilization as we know it, disappearing with the fall of Babylon. Now, Pastor Rob, when does this happen? When does Babylon disappear? When does civilization as we know it come to an end? I'm guessing you're anxious to know. Chapter 14 tells us that this happens at the return of Christ. Chapter 14, you mean five chapters ago? This is not the first time we've read about the fall of Babylon. Here's what chapter 14 says. Uh, Chapter 14, another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. That was one of the previous times John took us through the end times. And this passage puts it in the context of Christ's second coming. Uh, 14 of chapter 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand, who we identified as the Lord Jesus in chapter 14. And according to 14, Babylon falls at the return of Christ when he comes to harvest the earth. That's when this takes place. Chapter 16 told us the same thing. Listen to the events that take place in the seventh bowl. Uh, This is chapter 16. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne of God, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. According to Daniel, uh, Revelation 16, the fall of Babylon takes place at the end, at the return of Jesus Christ. And our chapter today seems to indicate the very same thing, that civilization ceases to exist. Daily life as we know it comes to an end at the return of Jesus Christ. What else would we expect to happen. We say this comes at the return of Jesus Christ. For what do we see after this disappearance of Babylon? What do we see after this disappearance of civilization as we know it? We find heaven 
rejoicing over Babylon after the harvest of the earth. I want you to show I want to show you this very last thing after the disappearance of Babylon the rejoicing in heaven first it comes from the saints in chapter 9 verse 1 after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out hallelujah salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth in her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. After Babylon falls and civilization disappears, heaven erupts with praise. This is the saints' of all ages, believers from Old and New Testament eras, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And then second, those nearest the throne cry out with praise. That is the 24 elders and the four living creatures. Look at verse 4, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures, they too at the destruction of Babylon, fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah! Those nearest the throne fall down and worship that God has finally settled the score with Babylon, the great city. Those opposed to God have been uh, settled. And then lastly, from the throne... We don't know if this is one of the four living creatures, some other angelic being near the throne. Uh, It's possibly Christ. We're not positive. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great, because Babylon the great is gone. There will come a day when all that drives you crazy about this world will cease to exist. And the question is, when those things cease to exist, will there be any grief in your heart? Will there be any feelings like those in Lot's wife? Will there be any feelings like the woman of Pompeii? Oh, 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 but I love those. And I'm sorry to see them go. That's a sure sign that your heart's in the world and the world is in your heart. Of course, when Christ returns, our sin natures will be removed from us will be stripped of those sinful desires. And we too will join this hallelujah chorus as we stand in the presence of God, raptured by Christ, taken to be with him. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to God because he has judged the great city. Well, how do we apply this? How do we make an application from this tremendous text, this huge text? There is a portion from the Gospel of Matthew. I think you're familiar with it. Another remedy for how to get the world out of your heart and how not to have our heart in the world. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And we could add, and that's going to burn anyway. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also. So, how do we get the world out of our hearts and our hearts out of the world? By understanding these five features of the great city, this luring city, this city that tempts us with its bright lights and its glamour. Uh, We understand the fall of Babylon. It is certain to happen. Second, the warning for us to flee the city. Uh, Third, the lament from those on earth. The disappearance of Babylon, it will vanish at the return of Jesus Christ and the rejoicing that takes place following. And so, Lord Jesus, we confess to you as your people that we have often found our hearts in the world and the world in our hearts I pray, Savior, by your good spirit, you would cleanse us from these things and enable us to store up treasure in heaven so that where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. Father, do this in us through your spirit who dwells within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.